0: Well, today we're returning to our study of 3 John, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 3 John. Last week we saw the commendation of Gaius, and there were three things that John said about Gaius. He was beloved, he was walking in truth, and he was faithful to the brethren and strangers. And today we're looking at a second person that is mentioned in this letter, and his name is Diotrephes. John writes about him in verses 9 through 11, so let's begin at verse 9 as I read this. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God The one who does evil has not seen God. What we've just read should be noted by every child of God because what we read is pride at its highest. It's never good to exalt yourself over others. In fact, the Scripture warns against this kind of behavior by telling us in Proverbs 30 and verse 2 that it's foolish when we do this, and by telling us in 2 Chronicles 32, 26 that it brings about God's wrath. And the reason for that is because God hates pride. Proverbs 8, 13 says, "...the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate." In fact, pride is what caused Lucifer to fall in the beginning. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 14 and 13 to 15, it says, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And God said, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. That is the epitome of pride, is I, I, I. It's always about you and never about anyone else unless you use them. Pride is also what has brought down kings, For example, over in Daniel chapter 4, we find Nebuchadnezzar talking about a situation that happened in his time. It's in Daniel 4, 29 and following. There was a prophecy, actually given in a dream, and here's where it came fulfilled. It says, 12 months later, this is 12 months after the dream, and the revealing of that dream. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me. And my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the King of heaven for all of his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. We can all agree that there are devastating consequences to this awful sin. But we're warned about it. We're even told in Psalm 75, in verse 5, Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. And the idea of lifting up the horn was describing a stubborn animal who kept himself from entering a yoke by holding his head up high, and as high as possible... And so that phrase came to symbolize rebellion. No, we're not to be filled with pride. Pride brought Lucifer down. Pride brought Nebuchadnezzar down. Instead, we are to be filled with love. It says in Mark twelve thirty one, Jesus said that the second greatest commandment is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And see, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't be guilty of this horrible sin of pride. And why would I say something about this? Well, I say something about this because as we begin to look at verses 9 through 11, we see pride at its highest. And we see it residing in a man named Diotrephes. And this, again, is contrasting to what we had already seen. Gaius was graciously hospitable. Diotrephes was ungraciously inhospitable. Gaius loved the truth and everyone who was of the truth and Diotrephes refused the truth and loved himself. And he threatened everyone from his position of self-appointed authority in the church. So you have one who submitted to the words of truth and you have the other one who spouted words of content. The difference between the two men is not primarily doctrinal but behavioral. John did not rebuke Diotrephes for his heresy. He rebuked him for his pride. Look at verse 9. John tells us in verse 9 that Diotrephes... Elevated himself. He said, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. He wrote to the church about this, perhaps because Gaius had been put out of the church by Diotrephes, and Gaius didn't even know all this stuff that was going on, or maybe he did know it intimately, but not the current conditions. But John said he wrote about this. And this letter was obviously lost. And maybe it was because Diotrephes destroyed it or because he never read it. John said the reason is because Diotrephes loves to be first. As I said, that is a dangerous behavior to adopt. To love to be first. Now I know when we were kids... We would like to do that, and we thought the neatest thing was is when our teacher would tell us to line up, and we would run, and we would try to get at the head of the line, especially if we were going to lunch. This is what I experienced when I was a school teacher. We'd tell them, okay, it's time to go down to lunch, but we're going to pray first, and everybody would stand up, and they were excited, and they were starting to line up. And then you'd have to take the ones that always jumped in the front and moved them to the back, because they loved to be first. First served. First one to the meal table. The Greek word that John is using here, it means to love or desire to be first or to be chief. An interesting thing is is that John uses a string of present tense verbs throughout this section telling us about this ongoing problem of diatrophies. Diatrophies always love to be First. In the context, the word is describing a person who is selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking. And this word only appears one other time in the New Testament. It's found in Colossians 1.18. It's prostueo, whereas the other word is philoprostuon, And that's part of a compound word, philos, which means love, and protos, which means first. Well, protoeo occurs in Colossians 1.18 where it talks about Jesus Christ being the preeminent one. And He is the only one who should be the preeminent one. Not us, not anybody in here, not anybody in the Bible, but Jesus, right? And we can certainly add the Father and the Spirit. But as I said, this was an ongoing attitude that Diotrephes had. And what he really needed to have was the attitude that John the Baptist had in John 3.30 where it says, "...he must increase and I must decrease." And I tell you what, the more that you live that in your life, the more it's really showing a level of spiritual maturity. Where Christ increases more and more and more in your life and you fall more in the shadows. J. Vernon McGee says that Diotrephes was a man who put on airs. He's pretentious. He's vainglorious. He struts around as a peacock. He has an overwaning ambition. He's puffed up, inflated like a balloon. He's one whom you have to receive with a flourish of trumpets. He comes in in a blaze of glory. Well, we're told in Scripture not to be selfish or self-centered or self-seeking. In fact, in Philippians 2.3, we hear these words, Do nothing from selfishness. Or, empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So when you are selfish, you're regarding yourself as more important than others. Linsky says, the self-seeking in that verse refers to what the selfish are after. Vainglory. And vainglory is what they get. They get a lot of this empty, hollow glory. He goes on to say this self-seeking is minding a certain thing, and the thing is empty glory when it's achieved. That's all it can produce besides shame. This was the attitude of the Pharisees. Over in Matthew chapter 6, We find a few of the things that they were doing that Jesus has to talk about as he's teaching his disciples and warning them not to adopt this same kind of behavior. In Matthew 6 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. And that's the key word because that's exactly what they were after. They were seeking to be first and they wanted all that recognition. He says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their full reward. I mean, I'm sure you're thinking when you hear a verse like that, that these people were actually doing this. They're out there in the street blowing their horn right before they help a poor person to draw attention to themselves? Yes. Because that's what pride does. It seeks to be first. But as he says there, this is their reward. The recognition of men. Even in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. God is not rewarding this kind of behavior. In fact, the, re- the behavior that He rewards is when you go into the secret place, that inner room, and you close the door, and you pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But He's not going to reward you in your pride, in your selfishness, in your attention gathering. Their reward is what they were seen by men and the reputation they gained while they were on the earth. James has a word for this. He says in James 3.16... Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Now James has already talked about the tongue in that same chapter and it's capable of creating a disastrous evil. So here he emphasizes the destructive power of envy and selfish ambition. And he tells us that from all of this flows all kind of evil. Things like vandalism and murder and adultery and warfare and theft and slander and other sins that violate people and provoke chaos in the community. So everything that John has said from this point, verses 9 through 11, is the result of pride. It's the result of loving to be first. Notice at the end of verse 9, John says that Diotrephes does not accept what we say. The word accept is also used in verse 10, but it's translated receive. And again, used in the present tense. He never accepts what we have to say. He never receives anything we say. It's like you're in the meeting with the guy, and he's the guy that always has to talk. He's a guy that always has to to make all the decisions, and nobody else can make any decision. Nobody else can make any suggestions. Nobody else is part of the body. He's the body. In fact, he's usurped his role over Christ. He's usurped his role over leadership in the church. His desire for power, his desire for self-glory had driven him to reject the authority of Christ mediated through the Apostle John. In the words of 1 Peter 5.3, he was lording over the brethren. And Jesus tells us in John 13.20, that he who receives whomever I send receives me. So by Diotrephes refusing these men and refusing to show hospitality, refusing the brethren, he was ultimately refusing Christ. And boy, how dangerous that is. Jesus even said further in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40, "...he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward." And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So in essence, welcoming Christ's emissaries is tantamount to welcoming Him. A.T. Pearson said, The Jews regarded the reward of the prophet as the greatest If you do more than receive a prophet in the capacity of a prophet, the same reward that is given to the prophet will be given to you if you help the prophet along. But this is not what Diotrephes was doing. If you look at verse 10, John actually gives a list of vices Diotrephes is guilty of, all again as a result of pride all as a result of desiring to be preeminent, being the first. John says in verse 10, For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, which he does. In other words, John is not going to overlook this challenge to his apostolic authority and to Christ's rule in the church. He's going to expose Diotrephes before the congregation and make his conduct a matter of church discipline, which is... Unfortunately, today becoming something more and more foreign in the church. See, Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 17, First Timothy 5, 19 and 20, both of those passages talk about church discipline. And the elders in the church, the pastors and so forth, they are entitled to the same kind of treatment everyone else is given from Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And so that's why John says, when I come, I'm going to confront him with this. This was a wicked man. And we're reading that off his deeds. Because his deeds are really revealing what's at heart. What his heart is about. And beloved, I would just be very quick to say that Diotrephes was lost. He was not a child of God. And I'll tell you why. I believe that there's a reason why John is giving to us these present tense verbs. Present tense verbs talk about ongoing action with that verb. And so as we're looking at this, for example, in verse 9, Diotrephes constantly loves to be first. He constantly does not accept what we say. And he's constantly using wicked words when he accuses us. This was an ongoing behavior, ongoing attitude that he had addressed. This was really character assassination. That's a common ploy of those who seek to elevate themselves. Those two words, unjustly accusing, only appear here in the New Testament. The related word that we find in Greek would be gossip. 1 Timothy 5.13 says at the same time, they also learn to be idle. They go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things that are not proper to mention. And you know, the scripture condemns this behavior as well. For example, Proverbs 20 verse 19, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. You should run far away from them. That very moment that that person starts using you as a bucket for their gossip, you should leave. We find in Romans 1.29 that those whom God has given over to a debased mind are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. He says they are gossips. Scripture also condemns slander. Leviticus 19.16, "...you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you're not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord." Psalm 101, verse 5 Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. And then Peter even says that we're to put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, 1 Peter 2 1. John says, I'm going to call attention to his deeds, which he does. And what are they? unjustly accusing us with wicked words. The idea of wicked, John uses that term poneros five times in 1 John. He uses it one time to speak of Cain's evil deeds. You remember what he did was of the devil. In 2 John, it's used to describe the evil deeds of the false teachers You see, Diotrephes' malicious accusations were were evil. They were false. They were slanderous. You know, one of the hardest things to deal with is when someone slanders you and you really have no defense other than to say that what you just heard was not true. And the sad thing is, is people are more willing to believe the lie about you than to believe the truth. They're always willing to look for the worse in you than look for the best in you. It's part of human nature. It's part of our sinfulness. It's part of our culture. It's not right. Theatrophies saw John as a threat to his power and to his prestige that he had in the church, and so he savagely attacked him. He did that character assassination, the the very same things that you and I have been seeing in this political climate that we're in right now. That's why a lot of good people don't want to run for office, because they don't want to go through the slanderous destruction that they have to deal with, destroying their life, destroying their families. Say it ain't worth it. So they don't run. But Diotrephes wasn't satisfied with just assaulting John with these wicked words. He also refused to give hospitality to the brothers. It says in verse 10, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And again, there's your contrast because what we learned last week, Gaius received them. Diotrephes refused them. We've all had... In churches that we've been in, a church boss. That could be an individual, it could be a family, it could be a pastor, it could be another staff member, but they exist. And I remember Erwin Lutzer telling me that. I was at a Ligonier conference, I was walking around in the bookstore and he happened to be over there. I was going through a difficult time in a church and I went over there and asked him if I could ask him a question about that. And his response after I talked to him was, he said, Steve, there is always a church boss. Again, it doesn't make it right. Because there's only supposed to be one boss. Who's that? Jesus. This is his church. He's the head of his church. He is the boss. I used to have a cap that I wore. I like to wear ball caps sometimes. And it said, Jesus is my boss. And it was so true because being a pastor, I went here on my own accord. He's my boss. Not satisfied with this, he doesn't receive. These brethren were the traveling preachers that were proclaiming the apostolic message of the gospel. Diotrephes saw them also as a threat to his own power in the church, so he refused to extend hospitality to them. He didn't want to be anywhere near them. As we said, this is lording over the flock. This is what I would actually call micromanaging the flock. I remember years ago when I was involved in church planning, I remember some young men coming up and asking me various questions about things. And as I think over it now, I was thinking, you know, some of those questions were not the right questions. Because what those questions were trying to do was trying to invite micromanagement in their life. And that wasn't good. Scripture commands us to be hospitable. We looked at that last week, but let me just remind you that when we are hospitable, we're actually going to address head on the selfishness in our heart, and we're also going to reveal the heart of God when we're hospitable. God cares about those who are in need, and He meets the needs of people through you and me. But here's a couple of verses. Psalm 68, five, God is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. Psalm 146.9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but He thwarts the way of the wicked. And because God is like that, we are told in Romans 12.13 to contribute to the needs of the saints and practice hospitality. And as I said last week, there is some discernment that has to be with this. You don't just entertain anybody. You don't entertain unrepentant sinners, because 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that they're under church discipline. You're not to have a meal with them. You're not to bid them this kind of attention, this kind of acceptance, because they have been put out of the church. They are now under the destruction of Satan. They have been removed from the authority of the church. And you can't go over there and just sit down with them and not talk about their sin. You've got to get them to understand their sin and repent. That's the only involvement that you have with someone who's been put out of the church. You can't go and spend your time with them and doing other things and never address their sin. Beloved, you are guilty of evil if you do that. We are not to neglect showing strangers hospitality. But the strangers that are going on in this text, as well as 2 John, were brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically preachers of the Word. Back then they didn't have what we have today. What do we have today? We have a a plethora of hotels that people could stay at. Traveling preachers could stay at hotels today, and they do. But during this time, you didn't have that kind of luxury. So you were dependent on the members in the church to help. And that's why you find, like in 1 Peter 4 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You opened up your home, not just for traveling preachers, but you also opened up your home for the church. The churches met in homes. This whole new thing that's going on today is not new at all. House churches. This is how the church started. It met in homes. It wasn't until the third century that the church had its own building. And since then it's had its own building. And you have a mixture between those who have buildings, those who meet in other kind of public places, or those who meet in homes. We've done that many times. When you start a church, that's usually where it's going to happen, is in your home. Until it outgrows your home. John said that Gaius was doing this, and therefore he was walking in the truth because he was being obedient to the command to be hospitable, but Diotrephes was not doing this, and he was actually guilty of rejecting the word of God. John MacArthur says, not only are Diotrephes' words vicious, his deeds are equally reprehensible. He willfully breaks the rules of Christian hospitality by refusing to receive missionaries sent out to proclaim the gospel. By denying them shelter and food, he hinders the progress of the word of God. In brief, Diotrephes is thwarting God's plans and purposes. And consequently, he faces divine wrath. Listen, if he faces divine wrath, that would only be because he's not saved. Because as a child of God, we are no longer under the condemnation or the wrath of God. That does not mean that we're not subject to discipline because we are, Hebrews 12. So not only did Diotrephes refuse to show hospitality to brothers, these itinerant preachers, but he actually stopped and removed those who did offer hospitality. Look at that again in verse 10. John says, He forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Uh, This was a further abuse of power. This was obstructing and preventing others in the church from showing hospitality to these itinerant preachers. And those who defied him and showed hospitality were put out of the church. See, that's how threatening he was. He had the clout to excommunicate anyone he perceived as an apparent threat. And... That probably did happen to Gaius, which would explain why John had to tell him about what was going on in the church. If he was still in the church, he would have been facing hostility and opposition from Diotrephes, and that would have prompted John to encourage him to not give in, but to continue to show hospitality. It's just like most conflicts in the church. This one stems from Pride. It was pride that caused Diotrephes to slander John, to snub the missionaries, to eliminate those who defied him. His arrogance led to ambition which resulted in false, slanderous accusations, defiant toward apostolic authority, crushing any opposition to his power. It's sad that there are people like Diotrephes in every church. Even more tragically, many churches, either because they are fearful of them or in the name of tolerance, refuse to deal with these types. But John, he wasn't hesitant. And we shouldn't be either. Because let me ask you this. If you have somebody in the fellowship acting like this, wouldn't you see... And wouldn't you desire to have it stopped? Or would you sit back and just let it go and watch the church be destroyed? I'll tell you right now, brothers and sisters, it only takes one person to destroy a church. One person. That's all it takes. And I've experienced that firsthand. I know what that's about. So you can't take anything lightly. John concludes in verse eleven with the command. And the command is found in the word imitate, mimiti, mimic. He commands them not to imitate what is evil, but to imitate what is good. What Diotrephes was doing was evil. And John did not want Gaius or Demetrius to imitate what he was doing. And I remind you again, this mimicking, this imitation, also a present tense verb. Do not continue... To do what is evil, but continue to do what is good. We are to follow those whose life is a habitual pattern of good. There are people in our life, there are people that we know, there are people that are followers of Jesus Christ that present a good pattern in their life as being obedient Christ-honoring believers. And see, see when, you, when you look at people, you have to look at the conduct of them. You have to look at their behavior. You don't just take their claim. You look at their life. I mean, even when you're looking at installing leadership in a church, you have to look at their life. Does their life match their claim? Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of conduct? And then he says, Imitate their faith. We we, we need the right pattern, we need the right example in front of us. And we're to be that right example, we're to be that right pattern for others. Paul said that, 1 Corinthians 4.16. He says, be imitators of me. You say, wow, Paul, that's, that's pretty arrogant to say something like that. Not if you study Paul's life. Paul was a humble man. And when he says it again in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he actually gives the qualifier. Here's the qualifier. Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. That's the only time we imitate other believers is as they imitate Christ. If they don't imitate Christ and they're putting out a bad example, you don't follow them. You don't imitate that. You don't imitate what is evil. You see, diatrophy shows us what is evil. Gaius shows us what is good. R.C. Sproul says, Tyranny like that of diotrophes reflects the opposite of the love of God. The temptation to respond in kind must be resisted. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that's challenging. Because I know when someone is acting in insolent pride, they can certainly get under your skin. My mom used to say this when I was growing up. You're getting on my nerves. That was mild. And if you were really getting on her her nerves, she would say she'd have to go take a nerve pill. Because if she didn't, she was going to kill you. (laughs) My mom did the discipline in the home because my dad worked two jobs. So my dad, when he did discipline, it it consisted of this. He threw a shoe at me. When my mom did discipline, she caught you with the belt. And that belt wrapped around you. Pow! You know, it's like a bullwhip. Or how, how have you ever told, go get me a switch out of that tree over there? So you come back with a twig. <laughs> but she would use it. And I'll tell you right now, with the but we see in our culture today, there's a lot of kids that need to be taken out to the woodshed. They need to have that switch on them because of the defiance. See, we have to imitate the right things. It's just like Philippians 4 8 when it talks about the things to think on. And I believe as part of our imitation of doing the right thing. It begins in the mind. You've got to think on the right things. Look with me at... Philippians 4, for just a moment. That's the same chapter, or actually the same book we were talking about in chapter 2 about doing nothing from selfishness but with humility of mind. And then he gives the example of Christ to let this mind be in you. If you go into chapter 4, he begins chapter 4 in verse 2 by confronting two people, Iodia and Syntyche. Apparently they had some kind of division going on because he wanted them to live in harmony and uh, verse 3, true companion, some believe the Greek word used there is actually the name of an individual that he was calling on to help these women. Because these women were special to Paul because they were helping him with the cause of the gospel and also with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. But what Paul was looking for in this church was that they would rejoice that they would let their gentle spirit be known to all men. They would be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting their requests be made known unto God. And verse 8, that they would think on things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely, and things that are of good repute or therefore commendable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. That's what he wanted. Think like this. And I'll tell you what, and you know this as well as I do, that becoming a child of God, there is in your life this process called sanctification, and it's really the process of changing your mind. It's the process of putting off. See, because naturally speaking, the natural man is depraved beyond anything. And as you become a child of God, you become a new person, a new creature in Christ. And sometimes God removes things immediately. Other times, He leaves it as part of your sanctification. But imitating what is good, that's universal for every child of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7.18 that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And I would just have to say Diotrephes was bad fruit. He didn't bear good fruit, he bore bad fruit. I mean, even if we want to just come back and say that he wasn't spiritual, or he was carnal, like 1 Corinthians 3, where the Corinthians, uh, as a result of their life, were putting out strife and divisions and conflict and so forth. And he says, listen, I can't speak to you as to spiritual, as if to say, I'm not saying you're not spiritual. He's saying, I can't speak to you like that. You can't receive it. You're fleshly. But just remember this. Fleshliness... Produces a revelation about yourself. If the habit is there, what is it saying? If the habit of your life is that you're fleshly, Galatians 5 16 through 18, actually, through 20, you know what it says? You're lost. That's what it says. You're lost. Look at what he says. Actually, let's begin in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness carousing and things like these meaning it's not an all conclusive list did you hear any of these that are in third john yes i did we mentioned jealousy falsely accusing with wicked words that would fall under outburst of anger disputes dissensions factions envying because he loved to be first? What's he saying in the rest of 21? Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who, keyword, circle it, practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not saying that you never fall into sin. It's saying that if the habit of your life is sin, You will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the practice of your life? Is the practice sin? Or is the practice righteousness? That's the question. We are to practice what is good. We are to constantly do what is good. Because the one who does good as john says is of god the one who does good is of god this is really going back to his first letter now for example first john 2:29 john said if you know that he is righteous you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him and again we're going back to practicing again the habit what's the pattern of your life is it righteousness or unrighteousness Because he says it again in chapter 3 verse 6, "...no one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning." The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Did you notice that two times he mentioned, actually three times, he mentioned about practicing. One time practicing righteousness, two times practicing sin. What's he say? If you practice sin, you're of the devil. If you practice sin, you haven't seen him or know him. So that's why John ends in verse 11 that the one who does evil has not seen God. And again, we're talking about habit, the one who continues to do evil. I'm telling you, most of the key to interpreting some of these passages that we look at is finding out what the tenses are in these verbs. You don't see this in the English, but it is all over the Greek text. Present tense is ongoing action. What is the habit? What is the practice? What is the ongoing action in your life? John said in John 3.20 that everyone who does evil hates the light of, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Adam Clark said, He who is unfeeling, unmerciful, unkind, hath not seen God, has no proper knowledge of that God whose name is mercy and whose nature is love. Listen, I realize that John may be saying this to some of you this morning. Maybe it's because you're not hospitable. But I know this, even though that that may be uncomfortable to do, When God transforms your heart, He produces in your heart, and we looked at last week, Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God. It says it's been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. So, not only does the direction of your life change, where you were headed for hell, now you're headed for heaven, but also the desires of your heart change. The desire of your heart is to love the brethren. The desire of your heart is to love, not hate. You know, it's a really amazing thing that when government persecutes Christians, they're really shooting themselves in the foot, so to speak, because the the people that are going to support them are Christians. You thought about it? Because Christians are called to submit to every ordinance of man, 1 Peter chapter 2. Christians are taught to be faithful and obedient citizens. And so to shut them off in their obedience, in their honoring the king, honoring those who are in authority is, man, you just shot yourself. The people that do not honor those in authority are the people who resist the authority. Like Diotrephes. (coughs) some people in the church (coughs) excuse me has been guilty of causing others to leave churches and not because of truth because of lies because of slander because of character assassinations In my almost 40 years of pastoring churches, I've seen this in the church. In fact, I've even experienced this personally. People get upset about some very interesting things in the church. And it's not that they're upset about those things, they're really more upset because you're challenging their authority. Their self appointed authority. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for the church. It's dangerous in your life. If I was going to fight against a church, I'd better be right. Crystal clear. And besides, I don't think I'd want to fight against that. If I say anything about a church, uh, it would be more off of its apostasy, like Laodicea. Laodicea was apostate church. So, beloved, what what is the, the pattern of your life? Are you one who constantly imitates what is good? Are you one who is like Gaius that... Is loved or beloved? One who is walking in truth. One who ministers to the brethren. Or are you? Are you like Diotrephes? You like to be first. You like to be the person that's recognized in everything. The person that has a voice in everything. The person who makes all the decisions. The person who is the church boss. Next week, we're going to see another man that was just like Gaius. His name is Demetrius in verse 12. Somebody else we should imitate. Beloved, if if you're like Diotrephes, and this is indicating more of a bent toward lostness, then you need to repent. You, You need to be saved. Uh, If you've been guilty of this a few times in your life, but this is really not the habitual pattern, but you've been guilty of it, you need to repent. You you need to examine your behavior, your attitude toward other believers or even toward the church. And I'll just tell you that this also is sin that Jesus died for. So come to Christ and have your sins forgiven. Whether you're coming to Him for the first time or whether you're coming to Him a multitude of times. Because repentance for the child of God is the way of life. Is it not? Father, we just come to you this morning and we ask that you would forgive us if we're guilty for this kind of behavior ever in our life, if we've ever given ourselves into any of this kind of wicked treatment of other people, other believers, that you would forgive us and wash us clean, which we know you have by your sacrifice of the cross, that you would Help us in our sanctification to harness this, to get our hands around this, to crucify this in our life. And yet, at the same time, if there's anybody here who's act like this, and the real reason is, is because they're lost, because they don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that this morning, Heavenly Father, You would save them, transform their hearts. Make them new creatures in Christ. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.